the piano? And stained glass? Or is it something more? 2,000 years ago, the church was born. It wasn't made up of the famous, the rich, or the powerful. It was made up of everyday people who passionately believed in the message of Jesus. It was the beginning of a revolution of love and freedom that would change the world forever. In 369 AD, the church built the first hospital as a place to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Today, the church is the largest single provider of healthcare in history. The church was the first to stand up for the rights of children, creating the first and largest orphanage system in the world. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded as Christian institutions. Places like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale, and Princeton. Much of the world's greatest art, architecture, literature, and music has been shaped by the church. But the impact of the church isn't just ancient history. Today, the church is stronger than ever and continues to impact every corner of the world. Over 300,000 churches in America and almost 5 million churches around the world stand ready to be instruments of change, to do what governments could never do. Every day, the church brings food and fresh water to millions of people across the world. It has a renewed passion to help widows and orphans and fights to free slaves in every part of the world. It stands ready as a first responder on the scene to provide relief for victims of disaster. The ripple of Jesus' impact can be clearly seen and felt in the church today. And it's made up of people like me and you. Today, you didn't just come to a building. You came to a revolution 2,000 years in the making. The world is facing as much trouble as ever. But we are not afraid. We were created for such a time as this. We will continue to do what we've always done. Proclaim the message of Jesus to help a world that needs him so desperately. Welcome. 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 Welcome to church. Welcome to church. We are somewhere in the middle, I think, of a series um, that we're calling Mega Church. And for those of you who are here for the first time, or maybe the first time in this series, um, you've, you're kind of coming in the middle of the movie, uh, so I'm going to try to catch you up. The title of the series is Mega Church, not because we are a mega church, or not even because we want to be a mega church, but because the church is a really big deal. The church is a really big deal, and we're really excited about that, right? The church is a really big idea, and it's a big deal. And so we've been addressing some questions. We've been asking questions like, how did this teacher from Galilee, who was born basically in a point of slavery under Roman rule, how did his message survive the first century? How did his message survive the destruction of ancient Judaism in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple and ran all the Jews off? How did it make it outside that era? How is it that we even know the name of Jesus today? How is it that this person that some people doubt is even a historical figure, how is it that his message has touched one-third of the world's population and that today as we gather, there are people gathering all over the world in similar buildings, in different kinds of buildings, in, in, out in hiding in the woods for fear of their lives, in homes, worshiping the resurrected Jesus? How is that? So far, for the past few weeks, we've been answering this question and now secular uh, historians, rightly so, have tried to come up with an answer. They try to answer this question, and they look for natural causes. How in the world did this happen? Because there has to be a natural explanation for, in their minds. But all the natural explanations fall short. There's really no better explanation than to how all this has happened than the explanation that we find in the book of Acts in the New Testament from the eyewitnesses who were there when the church launched. The church didn't launch as an institution. The church certainly didn't launch with a building. The church launched as a movement. 
A movement of people who flooded the streets of Jerusalem and said, hey, you know what's going on? A couple months ago, if you'll remember, you guys crucified a man named Jesus, and he rose from the dead, and he was crucified right outside those walls over there, and he rose from the dead, and and we are eyewitnesses. And as this hundred or so people flooded the streets of Jerusalem with this incredible, very difficult to believe message, not a hundred years after the fact, not hundreds of miles away from where it happened, but in the very city in which these things happened, thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem embraced the simple idea that Jesus was in fact the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that God had raised him from the dead. So suddenly, Jerusalem is flooded with people from all these surrounding communities saying, God has done something unique among us. God has done something really unusual right here among us. And the word began to spread. And then as we talked about uh, for the past few weeks, persecution broke out. Because suddenly this new movement that they called the way, that was ultimately called Christianity, this new movement disrupted the delicate balance of power between Rome and the Jewish authorities. So Rome, along with the Jewish authorities, began to persecute the early Christians, and they flooded the surrounding areas. And everywhere they went, instead of backing down, instead of dumbing down their message, instead of toning down the rhetoric, they were as bold as ever, saying God has done something unique. It's not around a teaching, it's around an event. A man has been raised from the dead, his name is Jesus, and he is the Son of God. Then a strange thing happened. The number one inquisitor, the primary persecutor, the guy who led this persecution, the guy who led the push to do away with the way and destroy this new movement, Saul of Tarsus, who we know as the Apostle Paul, was converted. He became the number one advocate for the movement. And he traveled all around the Mediterranean Rim, and he began to plant little churches, little gatherings. We call them little ecclesias. That's the Greek, the Greek word. All around that part of the world. Roman citizens and Greek-speaking people and people from completely different backgrounds and cultures than, than his own began to embrace this idea. And it spread and it spread and it spread. Then in 67 AD, when, when Nero put him to death, even though Paul was gone, the message continued to spread. And 2,000 years later, long after the Roman Empire ceased to be, long after ancient Judaism, that's the the foundation of Christianity, long after it really ceased to be, long after the final sacrifice was made in that temple, that ancient temple, here we are today worshiping this risen Savior. And it's incredible. The church is a big, big deal. So the question I want to ask today, and I want to try to answer today, is does the church really matter Today, Does the church matter today? Is our message relevant today? If we were to suddenly disappear and the church were to suddenly disappear, other than, you know, talk about heaven and good things by and by, what happens after a person dies and we can all have warm fuzzies at a funeral service, you know, other than comfort at funerals, would it make any difference? In other words, does our message matter today? Does our message really matter in this life? Does it make any difference if the church exists today or not? Is it making any difference in our culture? Has it made any difference in the world? And the answer is absolutely yes. But I wonder if we could really expand on that and explain why. The problem is, as Americans, this is very, very difficult for us to appreciate. Your thinking and your understanding of right and wrong has been so impacted by Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, that it's impossible for us to fully appreciate this. We were born into a culture 
where certain values were accepted, where certain values were taught, whether it's in a public high school or a Christian high school or a public elementary school or a Christian elementary school or even in your home or, or an institution of higher learning, wherever. And we've come to believe, and it's understandable why, we've come to believe that everybody in the world thinks this way. Well, of course that's right. Of course that's wrong. But because we're so accustomed to this, we cannot appreciate the value and the impact that the local church and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has made on our culture. If we were able to stand back and get the, the, the full perspective, we would say, does the church matter? Exclamation point. Does the church matter more than ever in light of the things that are happening in our culture? So perhaps the best way for us to appreciate that is to look at this from somebody else's perspective. I don't know if you're familiar with David Aikman. David Aikman is an author. Um, he, he, he wrote a book that I've just started reading called uh, Jesus in Beijing, and it's amazing. He was the bureau chief in Beijing and the senior correspondent for Time magazine for many, many years. He wrote about 12 or 13 books. He's a real top-level guy. I mean, this guy, he lectures at Harvard and other Ivy League schools. And when he was working for Time magazine, he interviewed everybody. And he had this real interest in... Uh, in culture, in social, and religion, and he interviewed you know everybody from Mother Teresa to Billy Graham and everybody else. And the list goes, he, he was like the guy. So while he's in Beijing, he had access to all kinds of heads of ministries and departments in the communist government. And during that time, he did dozens of interviews. And I want to read you a statement that someone he interviewed made about the impact of Christianity on our culture, on American culture. <clears throat> and this is kind of hard for us to see. It's impossible for us to appreciate because we're Americans and because this is all we've known. Um, but here's this quote, and it's a little bit long, and I'll, but it's pretty fascinating. Aikman records this statement from a Chinese social scientist, so it's an intellectual. He's, he's indoctrinated in Maoism, who he, he carefully studied the West. Here's what this guy had to say. This is a quote. One of the things we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West all over the world. So this group of social scientists, they get together, and they are given the task of, what is it? Why is it? You know? And, of course, uh, this is because China wanted to become a world player, as they have, and and they wanted their economy to flourish, as it is, and they want the smart guys to find out what the West was doing and how they could emulate that. Because, you know, if we want to have the kind of impact and the kind of economy that the West has, uh, they sent some guys in to do some research. He continues. We studied everything we could from historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. Listen to this. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. So that's a simple explanation. The bigger your guns, the more powerful your economy. The bigger your military, the more powerful your economy. The more widespread your influence, you know, that they thought would make sense. He says, then we thought it was because you had the best political system. (coughs) Didn't take long for them to figure out that's not the answer. (laughs) Next, we focused on your economic system. Listen to this. But in the past 20 years, we've realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That's why the West has been so powerful. And we don't think that way. I don't think that way. We think it's it's our political system because we're a democracy and everybody gets a vote and we get to govern ourselves. We think it's our economy because, you know, free enterprise, capitalism, American dream. We think it's that we've got more, you know, airplanes and smart bombs. Uh, We're sea to shining sea. We've got incredible breadth of landscape and natural resources and we're protected by oceans and neighbors. And we have all these reasons. And here are the smartest people in China who are going, what is the secret sauce? What's the secret? Aha, we've discovered it. It's Christianity. To which we are like, are you kidding? I mean, because here's what we think. We think, as a, as a country, 
Well, as individuals, we're not even good Christians, but as a country, we certainly aren't. In fact, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, whoa, 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 don't throw me in with that bunch of crazy people. You know, I'm not even a Christian. I'm an American. I'm not a Christian. Don't blame what is happening in our culture. On There are all kinds of divisions among Christianity, within Christianity, but an objective person stands back and says, you know what, you... You may not know the secret sauce. You may not know the, the power of, and the, uh, the secret of our power and our success, but he says, as we've looked at it, we've discovered it. It's not your bombs. It's not your economy. It's not your democratic form of government. That's all great, but something else. It's your, it's your faith. It's your Christianity. And he goes on. He says, the Christian moral foundation of the social and cultural life that was made possible, that made, is what made possible the emergence of capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. He says, we don't have any doubt about this. So here's what they discovered. That it isn't capitalism. It was capitalism with a conscience. It was capitalism with a conscience and a conscience that was informed by the church. Capitalism with a conscience informed by the teachings of the church in the New Testament. And they stood back and they realized, they realized wisely that capitalism alone won't get us there. Not at all. We will implode. You know, bigger bombs won't get us there. The secret sauce is these values, this, these fundamental beliefs, the thing, this cohesion that brings them together, this amazing sense of right and wrong that just dwarfs, he says, it dwarfs us in terms of your belief in human rights and individual rights. He goes on. Studies by Chinese sociologists reveal that, these are sociologists looking at their own country, that in rural areas where traveling evangelists, we would, we would call them missionaries, where they introduce Christian faith in rural China, this is what happens. Opium addiction goes down, crime drops, and Christian families grow wealthier than their neighbors. You know what they discovered and that we tend to lose sight of? That the church matters. The church makes a cultural difference. That the things that we love and the freedoms that we love and the opportunities that we love as Americans, we want to chalk it up to a whole lot of different things, but those on the outside looking in who, who are, want what we have and who honestly ask what is the secret sauce is that there's a belief system, there's a deep value system. There's a dignity given to men and women and children and it comes from your Christian heritage. That's the secret of Western success. But we tend to not be able to see this and here's why we can't see it because we think that all of this, the American dream, just comes naturally. We think everybody else is just, you know, they, they're evil, and what we do just comes naturally. We think our view of right and wrong is something we're born with. I mean, doesn't everybody in the world think that people should be treated this way, and doesn't everybody understand? And the answer is no. That's why you watch the news, and you watch what happens in different countries. And, of course, you don't say this unless you're in the privacy of your own home with your family, but you look at what happens in certain countries, and you're like, why can't they just grow up? Why are they so stupid? Why can they not see this? How in the world can they allow poverty like that to exist? Why don't they do something about that? We'd never let that happen. And so why don't they, and why don't they, and why don't they? And the answer is because they do not see the world the way you see it. You've been so extraordinarily impacted by the church, by Christianity, by the teachings of the New Testament, and other nations recognize that. So does the church matter? You better believe it matters. You see... We are not only stewards of the message of eternal life. We are stewards of the message of a better life, a better kind of life, a better quality of life now. See, nature in and of itself is violent. 
what comes naturally isn't good. Nature is an earthquake that destroys a country. Nature, or what's, what's natural, is a tornado ripping through a neighborhood. Natural is disease. Nature is violent. It, it's, at times it's beautiful, but when you move back beyond the ethereal beauty of distance, you know, when you look at nature, nature's violent. In nature, the biggest and the baddest are first. Nature's about might, might makes right. You know, nature is all about first come, first served. Listen, this may be hard for you, but human nature is no different. It's not. We think it is because we're Americans. We think it is because we've been so extraordinarily Christianized that we can't even appreciate it. Human nature looks like this. Human nature is racism. You're different than me and I'm better than you. That's human nature. You've seen that. Maybe you've felt that. You've experienced it. Maybe you've participated in it. And even though you would say, oh, racism's a bad thing, you've found yourself experiencing it on one side or the other. That's nature unleashed. Adultery, everybody's against adultery, and yet it's very prevalent. Why? Because it's natural. That left to, her, left to, left to itself, I mean, left to himself, left to herself, it's natural. Cheating, I mean, many of you, I'm just going to read my notes and not look up. The reason, many of you, the only reason you don't cheat on your income taxes is because you think, you think you might get caught if you do. And that's the only reason. Left to our own devices, if we think we can get away with it, I won't ask how many of you have ever had a radar detector, right? So if I can get away with it, this is where nature goes. That's nature is lying, slavery, first come, first serve, an eye for an eye. You're different than me. I'm better than you. What we don't understand, what we can't fully appreciate is that the church matters more than we can ever really explain. So the Apostle Paul, this guy who spread Christianity throughout the Mediterranean Rim, he talked about this specifically. And I want to read some verses from Galatians. You know I'm going to get there eventually. Galatians chapter 5. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, uh, if if you've ever read your Bible, you've read these verses before. If you spend any time in church, uh, you've heard these verses before. If you're not a Bible reader, these verses should make you want to read the Bible because uh, it's, it's incredible. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is going to contrast for us what does nature look like, what do people look like, uh, people who are left on their own look like, and then what does a life lived under the influence and surrender to the Holy Spirit, what's that look like? You know, what if there was a group of people that allowed God to control their behavior? What if there's a group of people that gathered together to allow the Spirit of God to change the way they viewed other people and change the way they treated other people? What would that look like? What would that look like in a church? What would that look like in a community? And then he's going to say, church, this is what you're supposed to look like. And if you read your history, here's what we'll discover, that these little ecclesias, these little gatherings who gathered around the teaching that I'm about to share with you, as he wrote this to a group of primarily Greeks and Romans in the area of Galatia, as they begin to allow their behaviors to be shaped and changed by this teaching, it began to impact their culture and ultimately the world. So here's what he says. Paul's writing, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires or the appetites of the flesh. In other words, he says, whether you want to admit it or not, if you go, if you go natural, it's not pretty. If you let nature, if you let your natural appetites and your natural desires rule your behavior, it's not pretty. In fact, he would say it's sinful. Then he goes on, verse, uh, jump to 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. 
or the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. That's kind of interesting because he, he says it's obvious and then he gives us a list in case it's not that obvious. Obvious means this. When Paul shows us a list, none of us are going to go, what? That's bad? I never knew. You know, people do that kind of thing. Obvious means you're going to see the list and go, I know somebody like that. I see him every morning in the mirror. Obvious means even though you haven't done some of these things, if you thought you could get away with it, you might. Verse 19. Acts of the flesh or the sinful nature are obvious. He starts the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. I don't know if any of you have used the word debauchery in a sentence this week. It's a word we really don't use anymore. It's basically that. It's basically just whatever, wherever, whomever, you know, go for it. That's what debauchery means. Let me pause and talk about this for just a minute, but not too long because we're in church. And, but I want to say something to men. <clears throat> I want to say something to men. Women, talk amongst yourselves, text each other, whatever you got to do here for a second. But men, can you imagine, don't, please don't imagine too much, but can you imagine living in a world where you totally allowed your sexual nature to control your behavior? If somehow you were rich enough, powerful enough, controlled the laws enough to where you couldn't get in trouble and there were no consequences. In the first century, there was a culture like that, and it was called the Roman Empire. You know, in the centuries that followed, there have been cultures all over the world and kings who, who had power like that. It destroyed many of those nations and those cultures from the inside out. But they were the kings, and the kings make the law, and the emperors make the law, and what, what they say is right, and what, you know, it's automatic. What they say is right is right, and what they say is wrong is wrong, and, and they allowed their nature to sweep uh, them along. Can you imagine what your community, your world, your schools would look like if somebody didn't put the brakes on that part of human nature? Because it is sinful no matter where you draw the line, no matter how you define sin. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. He's continuing his list. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. This is not in any particular order. It's not in descending order. Like here are the big ones and here are the ones that God just kind of looks the other way at. <coughs> Idolatry is essentially giving more or putting more value in something than someone. Just think about that. Idolatry is I don't mind hurting your feelings if it'll keep you from scratching my car. Idolatry is I don't mind making you feel less important than me, uh, you know, and I don't feel making you, I don't, I don't mind even making you feel less important than my stuff or my, you know, stamp collection, uh, my coin collection or my hardwood floors. Uh, idolatry is stuff has greater value than people and stuff has greater value than God. That's idolatry. Witchcraft is simply trying to harness the supernatural for your own selfish ends. Hatred, discord, jealousy. We can't see this one in the mirror. It doesn't show up. We just don't see jealousy in the mirror. But some of you ladies do not like skinny women. I'm just saying, right? I just had a... Wow, I didn't realize I would touch on... Who knew that... <laughs> you hate them. <laughs> you can't say that. You hate the fact that you feel that way, but you don't like it. Some of you guys don't like rich guys. You know what? You, when you, I was in the Bangor Mall yesterday, which, whew, wow, I had to... 
I got to take a nap today because that was stimulating. I was in the Bangor Mall yesterday, and I noticed uh, a couple of Mercedes there, and I drooled a little bit. But if I am trying to find a parking space, and that jerk with the new Mercedes is parked over the line into my space, I hate him. <laughs> it's really not about his parking. We see a guy with a super awesome car that's paid for that we could never begin to afford. And we just decide we don't like him. I don't even want to know him. I don't like him. I just looked at his car. Whoever owns that car, jerk, don't like him. Because it's natural. We're all guilty of this at some level, right? It's natural when people have something or look a certain way that you're never going to look. It's natural to want to bring them down. And it's almost impossible to celebrate somebody else's success if he or she is more successful than you are. What is that? That, that? That's nature. It's that sinful nature. It's the way the world kind of naturally goes. Uh, keep reading verse 20. Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness. Orgies and the like. And you're like, wouldn't orgies be higher in the list? This is, they're all... Fits of rage, really? Selfish ambition? What about the American dream? Oh, and then he says, and the like. <laughs> little Greek phrase that means etc. It's where the word came from. It just means stuff. And stuff. And he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we know that the kingdom of God is not just afterlife. We've diluted that whole teaching in churches over the years. The kingdom of God is the here and now. It's what Jesus left us. He says, I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Present tense. I go through this list. Everything on this list comes naturally. It's natural. We all go in that direction. And you know what we do in modern society with things on this list? Do you know what we do? Here's what we have to do. We have to establish laws. Do you know why we have laws? Because nature pushes all of us in this direction. That's why we have laws. Laws say, left to your own, you're bad. Laws say, left to your own, you will cheat and you will steal and you will take advantage of people. So we have to have laws. Laws are the reason some of you are as good as you are. It is the reason I don't drive 72 on High Street. It is the reason. In my car that you're all jealous of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're pretty good, but you're only good because of the law. And if you thought that you could get away with, you know, fill in the blank, you would do it. So is the church important? Does the church matter? Does the message of the church matter? Absolutely. Because apart from the message of the church, if things went the way things would naturally go, this would be a society that none of us would want to live in. So Paul says this, and this is another picture, and this is awesome. We're turning the corner. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, you know what this is? The fruit of the Spirit thing. This, the Spirit is the thing that energized the first century apostles and the first century followers of the way and the first century Christians to go out into the streets and risk their lives to say that God has done something new in our midst. The Spirit is what inhabits believers when they say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He rose from the dead. He died for my sins. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit moves in and begins to inform your conscience. It's the Spirit that kind of makes you think, oh, I shouldn't. It's the spirit that says, I don't, I, don't think, I, I don't think I should go. I don't think I should look. I don't think I should click. 
I don't think I should type. I don't think I should cheat. It's the Holy Spirit that begins to inform our conscience and moves us to live and act in a way that our own, on our own, naturally, we would never have done. It's the Spirit that moves you to live a life that, are you ready for this? That even if there aren't any laws, you would do the right thing. Listen to this, verse 22. Fruit of the Spirit is love. This is not, you can't pick one of these and say, that's my fruit. No, this is a package deal. All right? Love is you first. Love is, oh, I was here first, but you can have my seat. Love is, I'm going to sacrifice for you, even though there's nothing coming back my way. You do not find that in nature. I've never seen that on Animal Planet or National Geographic. It doesn't happen in nature. Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness. I'm telling you, when Paul wrote this, Rome, when Rome ruled the world, kindness wasn't in their dictionary. It was might makes right. The emperor's word is law. Verse 22, uh, keep reading kindness. Goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness is if I said I will, I will. Faithfulness is I said I would stick by you when things were good and when things were bad, I'm going to stick by you. Faithfulness is it doesn't matter whether the law makes me do it or not, I'm going to be faithful. Men, faithful is what you want your sons-in-law to be, right? Faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness and self-control. That, the list is, runs into there. Self-control runs contrary to everything that nature urges you to do. In fact, think about this. What if we just had self-control month in America? One month, just one month. Self-control month. They put me in charge just for a month. And I announced self-control month. For one month, just one month, everybody in America is going to exercise perfect self-control. <clears throat> you'd be skinnier. You'd be healthier. You'd get along. Husbands would be unbelievable. Wives would be unbelievable. Things on the Internet that we wish would go away would just go out of business for at least a month. If our culture simply embraced this one value... What a difference that would make. So does the, does the message of the church matter? Oh, yeah. Because we're not just stewards of the message of eternal life. We're stewards of the message of a better life, an abundant life. And it runs contrary to what's natural. And it, run, and it runs contrary to what's normal. And the Apostle Paul ends this little dialogue with a brilliant, brilliant insight. If you've read the scripture before, my hunch is you read right over this and keep going. And you didn't go, oh, my goodness, that's brilliant. There has to, I've read it a million times and memorized it and never really gave it much thought. But there has to be, I mean, there has to be something to the Bible, you know, because some of the stuff that we, we, we miss over and over and over, and then boom, it comes to life. This next phrase is astounding. This next phrase, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're new to Christianity, never read your Bible, always read your Bible. This is one of those where you've got to go, you know, if there's this kind of insight in this book... Uh, I need to read this. The next phrase is staggering in its implications and its significance. Listen to how Paul finishes this list. He's listed all these acts of the flesh. He's listed all the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and here's how he finishes this list of what a person or a community uh, looks like when it's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, against such things there is no law. And if you're going, well, I was waiting for something big. You know, I know that. Listen, this is huge. This is really huge. If you've been counting ceiling tiles or light fixtures or texting, come back with me just for a minute. Listen. He says, when it comes to the natural acts of the flesh, we have to have laws to control people's behavior. 
but when an individual, when a family, when a church, when a community, when a culture, when a nation embraces the deeds and the activities fueled by the Spirit of God, there is no need for law. You never hear anybody say, okay, that's enough patience now. That's enough patience. Sit down. Don't make me come over there. Enough, enough patience. No more patience. You've never said that to your kids as, you know, they're playing together. You know? That's too much. Hey, no more patience. Don't make me come over there. Don't make me stop this car. Too much joy. Hey, no, okay. Now, maybe not a good illustration because some people really do have too much joy. And it's annoying. But uh, <laughs> you know who you are. Um, too much love. You know the problem with your marriage? Too much love. Yeah, that's it. Yep, that's you got. You got to tone down the love. That's the problem. We need a law against love because a law, you know. Do you understand how brilliant this is? That what Paul says when a culture, when an individual, when a family, when a Christian embraces and allows the Holy Spirit to transform his or her behavior, the need for law diminishes to nothing. Because suddenly, I'm not the center of my world. Suddenly, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about my Savior. You know how powerful that is? When people understand, and when people allow this to transform their behavior, the need for law diminishes to absolutely the minimum amount of law. Here's why I'm saying this. Does the message of the church matter? Are you kidding me? We are stewards of the message of a better life today. We are, in a way, an illustration as a nation with all the problems and the fact that we need to shore up some of our values, absolutely. But we talk about that stuff all the time. But compared to where we could have been, compared to what our story could have been, compared to where some nations are, we are basically the fruit of this principle. What's happened in the history of our country and who we are and the things that we understand in our culture as right and wrong, they, they are not natural. We've been taught. We've bought in. We've been stamped with a future by a previous generation, previous generations of people who understood and thought like the church and like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is really important. I want to make sure I make this really clear. The church has never thought that all cultures are equal in terms of validity and in terms of experience. Because the church has never said that all cultures are equal. So if you have a culture and I have a culture, they're all of equal value. The church has always said there's a superior culture. And so to the first century Roman culture, the church said, we don't think a culture that treats women as property is good. We don't think a culture that says the king's word is law is good. We don't think that's a good culture. We think that our Christian culture is superior to the culture of Rome. And we think that our culture is superior to the culture of the Greeks, where the class system uh, kept people at a certain place economically that they could never move out of. And since that day, the church has always said, we're not better because God made us better, but our culture, our worldview, our way of life is superior. And yes, we'd love the entire world to adopt these values. It is a better life. It provides for a better life. We think that our Christian values are better than a culture where a man can put his daughter to death because she dishonored the family. Christians say, no, you forgive and you reach out and you love. And we say that's better. 
We think our culture is superior to a culture that says little girls are of less value than little boys. So if you have a little girl, you sit her on the steps of the orphanage or out in the woods or out in the street and you go have yourself a little boy. We say as Christians, we say, no, we think God created little boys and little girls equal, that they all have value in God's eyes. We think that our way of looking at life is superior to a religion or a culture that says, you know, don't help poor people because it'll mess up their karma. You might mess up their experience in a future life. We would say, no, our way is superior. We're not, we're not superior, but we have the opportunity to bring a better life now because of what Jesus taught and what the New Testament teaches. It's the church that says everybody you are ever eyeball to eyeball with was made and fashioned in the image of God. They have dignity. They have value. It's the church that says, husbands, husbands, come on, husbands. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Maybe we should have a love your, love your wife like Christ loved the church month, too. We, we'll do that right after self-control month. Uh, that would be a good start for us to, to build on. Imagine the difference in our American culture. For a month, Christian and non-Christian men decided, I'm going to value and treat my wife like Jesus valued and treated the people whom he loved. Imagine the difference that would make. Who else is going to say that if the church doesn't say it? It's the church that says forgive, 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 forgive. It's not an eye for an eye. It's forgive because you've been forgiven. It's accept because you've been accepted. It's serve because you've been served. It's the church that says value those who society says have little value. It's the church that says give even when there's nothing coming back to you. Show mercy even to those who haven't shown you mercy. Love your enemies. Pray for those. Who else is going to say that? So does our message matter? Of course it matters. Because you have the message of eternal life and you have the message of a better life. Oh, it goes, it goes a whole lot deeper than that. I mean, the message of the church reaches every part of our culture. It's the church that says sex isn't for mature people. It's for married people. It's the church that says sex isn't for committed people. It's for married people. Sex isn't for people who are in a committed relationship. You know, we've been living together for years. It's for married people. It's the church that says sex is more than physical. You are, that says you are more than a physical body. You have a soul. God gave you intimacy. And God gave this sense of oneness for a very specific purpose. And if messages like this disappear from our culture, it leaves us in a place where we treat people like they're nothing more than a temporary physical body. It's the church that's been on the forefront to say that abortion is not a solution. And I don't really care this morning whether you're pro-life, pro-choice, or we're political, whatever, what bumper sticker you have in your car. But the church says, based on the teaching of Scripture, that abortion is not a solution. And the reason it's not a solution is you're not just a physical body. You have a soul. And anything that negatively impacts your soul, we stand up and we say, wait, 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 there's a better way. So if the church disappears, that messaging disappears. It's a message that shaped our culture. It's a message that has shaped the West. It's a message that China is looking at today and says, that's what we've been missing. If we're going to be what the West has become. And their motives may be purely economic. Their motives may be world domination. I don't know. I don't really care. But if it opens the door to American Christians and evangelists and missionaries, and the Apostle Paul said, I don't care, you know, why they let you preach. Just go in there and preach. Because the power of the gospel has a power to transform lives. And when lives are transformed, communities and nations and even the world are transformed. So if you want to imagine what a nation looks like where all this teaching is suddenly not there or never has been there, 
You go back a few years, just not too many years, and look at what happened in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, where they tried to have economic incentive, and yet they could never gain traction and essentially went bankrupt because they decided that the state was God. And now look what's happened. They've tried to have free enterprise. They've tried to have capitalism, but they have no conscience informed by Scripture, and it continues to falter and fail. So those in China who've observed our culture are exactly right. The secret sauce is our faith. The secret sauce is the church. The secret sauce is Christianity. The secret sauce is the teaching and the value of Jesus. You may be familiar with the name Adrian Rogers. I don't know if you've ever heard of Adrian Rogers. He was a pastor in Memphis for many, many years. Died in 2005. He was a president of the Southern Baptist Convention a few times. Had a voice that every preacher wishes he had. But he used to tell a story about being on a plane. I love preacher stories that are on planes because maybe some of them might be true, but this might have been. After, Adrian Rogers tells a story. He was on a plane leaving Memphis, and after they were airborne, he reached down, he picks up his big black holy Bible, and he brought out his tray table, and he started reading his Bible. The man sitting next to him was reading uh, Sky Mall or something, and he said in a, in a few minutes, the guy put the magazine down, and he says, can I ask you a question? I know it's none of my business, but why, are you reading the, why do you read the Bible? And Adrian Rogers, who was just this influential preacher, said it's one of those moments where as a Christian you're like, oh, God, what do I say? I have so much I want to say, but I only have a soundbite. I can't give him a sermon. I can't give him a seminary lecture. I just have a soundbite. Give me the soundbite. I, I, I can't start with Genesis and take seven hours to give. I just need a soundbite. And here's what he said. He said, sir, I've discovered that in this book are the solutions for the three things that plague mankind. I've found that in this book is the solution to sin, sorrow, and death. And from that, all three, from those things, all other things stem. And the guy's like, oh, okay. And he picks up his magazine and keeps reading. And Dr. Rogers continued to read his Bible. And he said quite a while went by. And the man put his magazine down again. He says, okay, um, I've been sitting here trying to think of something that doesn't fall. I'm trying to think of a problem that we encounter in human existence that doesn't fall into the category of sin, sorrow, or death. So tell me about your Bible. Does what we do matter? Oh, we have no idea. We have no idea how it matters. Is what we're doing as a local congregation in the church in general important? We have no idea. Can we be a part of continuing to shape and reshape our culture? Absolutely. Today, there are more crosses throughout the city of Rome than in any other city in the world. The empire that tried to put the way and Christianity uh, away forever is now sort of the epicenter of Christianity from a lot of the world's point of view. Why? Because the message is powerful. It shapes people and families and communities and countries and has the potential to shape the world. The reason what we do is important is this, because we've been given the stewardship of the message of eternal life. And we've been given the stewardship of a message of a better life and an abundant life and purposeful and meaningful life now. We dare not turn our backs to culture and simply talk to ourselves. Because if ever there was a time in our lifetime when it's time for the church to ramp up and amp up our message and be engaged and be engaged socially and be engaged in our communities and to live out these values in our culture, it's now. So here's what we know. If we do this, it has the power to shape and change lives, communities, our nation, the world. Because a church is a big, big, big deal. And we've been given the stewardship of the local church for our generation. This is part five of the series. We've sung this song every week. Well, we've listened to it. 
So tonight, today we're going to sing it. So we're, I would ask you to, if you're comfortable, let's stand. And the lyrics will be on the screen. We're going to sing. This is Ren Collective, Build Your Kingdom Here. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made. Come set our hearts ablaze with hope, like wildfire in our very souls. Holy Spirit, come invade us now. We are your church we need your power in us we seek your kingdom first we hunger and we thirst refuse to waste our lives for you're our joy and prize to see the captive hearts released the hurt the sick the poor We lay down our lives for heaven's cause We are your church We pray revive this earth Build your kingdom here Let the darkness fear Show your
darkness clear Show your mighty hand Heal our streets and land Set your church